Please remain standing and pray with me. Holy Spirit, come now and enliven the teaching and preaching of your word, Lord, so that what was inspired and powerful in the moment that it was spoken and inspired and powerful in the moment that you caused it to be recorded, Lord, would once again be powerful and inspired among us as we hear it preached today. So be with me, the preacher of your word. Hide me behind the truth of the scriptures, and may your word alone proclaim your goodness. And Lord, I pray for us as a gathered congregation that all of our hearts and all of our minds would be fully engaged and open uh, to, the, to receive the seed of God's word planted in us and that it would mature and bear good fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. We are in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 contains a series of seven parables. Uh, it is packed with parables. It sounds like a commercial for uh, a product, you know, like packed with peanuts. No, this is packed with parables. And it, they are awesome parables. And in fact, some of these are unique parables. Uh, Matthew is the only gospel writer to record the parable of the wheat and the tares, or weeds, the wheat and the weeds. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds. Ha, 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 pun is intended. Dad humor will abound. Uh, I don't want to get into the weeds about the dating of the Gospels, but let's just accept this morning for the sake of argument that the early church's view that Matthew was the first Gospel to be written is correct. And by the way, that view has received a renewed acceptance among many scholars today, which is an interesting development. But that's not really pertinent to us this morning. But if it is the first Gospel to be recorded, that would place the composition of this book to about 63 A.D. That's almost exactly 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. 30 years, 30 years for the church, the early church, to grow and to begin to take on certain structures, certainly locally throughout the uh, Mediterranean world, and most of all for certain problems, certain problems to begin to be an issue. About 30 years, three decades, and things are going to show up that might be problematic. And we see that in Matthew's Gospel. We see that concern addressed in Matthew's Gospel. You see, Matthew has a unique concern about how the church seems to not be living up to the good news about Jesus. He is concerned about the inconsistencies and outright sin of the church's members, those who are a part of the Christian community. We see that actually in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he, Matthew is the only gospel writer who gives us extensive teaching by Jesus on how to go about church discipline. That's in Matthew 18. How do we handle situations in which Christians fall into sin and harm their brothers and sisters? And He's seeing that in his church, and he remembers Jesus' teaching on that. And there is a deep nagging question, a deep nagging question for Matthew on why don't people in his community really act, why don't some of those people really act like followers of Jesus? So he remembered that Jesus actually addressed this problem in texts like the one we read today, the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And you know, I can't think of a more critical teaching to deal with than this teaching right this minute. 
almost every day we hear of well-known and sometimes not so well-known people who seemed, seemed to be followers of Jesus, yet turn away from Christ or perhaps are exposed in some sort of scandalous immorality. And the result of this, this, this seeming believers turning away, falling away, being caught in, in immorality, the result of that is twofold. First of all, those outside the church, those who are scoffers and scorners and mockers of Jesus and his church say, see, see, we told you, Christianity can't be true. Just look at all the hypocrites. Look at all those people who drop out. So false believers, false disciples fuel the world's contempt, contempt and scorn for the Christian faith. And a second result of this, the prevalence of false Christians, is that it demoralizes and it discourages the faithful. So the reality that there are false believers in the church, people who seem to be Christians but then reveal themselves not to be, this, this reality demoralizes and discourages believers. Often people we admire and trust as leaders and influencers in the Christian community turn out to be turncoats and traitors. And I'm using that word traitor very specifically because, in fact, the word traitor has its root in the Latin word traditor. And that word is significant and got pulled into English usage directly because of Christian history. In the persecution of the church by the Roman emperor Diocletian in the year 303 A.D., certain church leaders who in exchange for their lives, certain church leaders, bishops, pastors, leaders of the church, in exchange for their lives, handed over, and that the uh, Latin for to hand over, or one who hands over, is traditor, handed over the sacred scriptures and some sacred vessels, you know, like Holy Communion, wearing things like that, but, but particularly they handed over the texts of the scriptures to be, per, to be burned by the persecutors. So one who handed over was a traditor, and that word has come down to us today as traitor. And in the face of such defections, such as that of well-known, uh, just this Friday, a well-known Christian children's author defected from the faith, we begin to wonder if we have been taken in, if we've been taken in by a fantasy, a lie, and maybe we should just stop burying, burying the heavy cross of discipleship and chuck it all in. Now, in this parable, Jesus warned us, though. He warned us from the beginning that there would be traitors to the faith in the church. So, beloved, Jesus went out of his way to prepare us for this reality, which has been a reality literally since day one. Has anybody ever heard of Judas? So now, in order for us to understand this, uh, this parable, we've got to do a little botany. Yay, botany! So happy about it. Uh, some people, their hearts have been strangely warmed at this. But in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 26, Jesus says, So when the plants came up, and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Okay, so why didn't anybody notice all those weeds until the wheat 
began to bear grain. Well, it's because Jesus is referring to a specific kind of weed that was a big problem for first century farmers in Palestine and throughout the Mediterranean world. That weed is called darnel. Darnell, which some people like to don't name your child Darnell, by the way. Darnell is a bitter, poisonous grain that looks almost exactly like wheat. In fact, that is its survival strategy. It depends on humans being unable to distinguish it from wheat so that it continues to grow up in wheat fields. So when Darnell and wheat are young, this is what you need to know, before they put forth their seeds, they are practically indistinguishable, even to experienced farmers. And by the time they begin to fruit, it's way too late because the darnel has much more vigorous roots that will intertwine with the wheat's roots. So if you try to pull up the darnel, you will end up pulling up the good wheat as well. And all you can do is wait until harvest time and then separate it at the harvest. And to this day, approximately 10% of the wheat crop in Ethiopia is still contaminated by Darnell. We hear an echo of Matthew's church's exasperation with the presence of false believers here in this parable that Jesus tells, Matthew 13, verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Or... We preached the word, the true word of God. We faithfully administered the sacraments. How can this result in false believers in the church? Do you see the connection? So here's the point that Jesus is making in Matthew, to Matthew's church and to our church, and we need to hear it today. Listen, there are always going to be false Christians. Always, there are always going to be false Christians sowed into the church, and according to Jesus, it is by the enemy. An enemy has done this. The enemy is the devil, he says. And our first instinct as disciples is to just run out there and start weeding the church. But in our zeal for pulling weeds, we may, in fact, probably will inadvertently uproot genuine disciples in the progress because you know the weeds have a lot more the weeds have a lot more vigorous root system here are the themes that apply to you and to me and to God's church right now in the year 2020 the first thing that we see in this passage is right on display at the very beginning is the patience of God and the impatience of the members of the household the disciples Matthew 13, 28, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do, you, do you want us to go and gather them? Do you want us to start weeding right now? Shouldn't we start weeding the church right now? You, you see, the servants of the household saw the problem of the weeds as being urgent. We need to deal with this right now. Don't just stand there, do something. But why would the householder in this parable be so patient? Well, I think that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I think 2 Peter 3, 9 is a great place to go for why he is so patient. And this is what the scripture says there. It's all throughout the scriptures, but this sums it up. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Here it is. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's patience with the weeds is so that by the grace of God, some of those weeds might one day become wheat. That person that looks like a false believer, that person who has in fact become trotitor, may one day repent. And by the way, some of those who were trotitors in 303 did repent. Because that's what our loving God, whose mercy never fails, desires. That's God's heart. Our Lord says, I have overcome death and hell. Don't you think I can turn weeds into wheat? That's such good news. There's so much hope in that. You know, our well-intended haste often ends up being destructive. So let me give you another gardening example. I'm not ashamed to because Jesus is just doing it all the way through Matthew chapter 13. So I feel like I can do this too. I could give you many illustrations, but this is the one that comes to mind. Back in early spring, I was, I was in, a, I was, it was urgent for me to start planting annuals. Now, my dad has a friend who runs a perennial plant farm, and his slogan is, friends don't let friends buy annuals. But I love annuals. I love, I love annuals. I couldn't wait to get plants. I couldn't wait to get flowers growing. And so I purchased my flats of marigolds and begonias and dianthus. The vincas weren't ready yet. And I had several colorful pots that I had purchased at the end of the year last year from the Dollar General when everything was about to be given away at the end of that season. And so I love the Dollar General, and they, they tricked me out real good with some beautiful pots. And I thought the petunias were going to look great in those pots. And so I hastily began to dump out all of that dirt from last year. I dumped it out to mix it with new compost. Now, if I say compost, you know that uh, somebody's been watching or listening to English people talk about farming. So uh, I've, uh, I was mixing it with, this is new compost, as Monty Don would say. Now, there, are some, there were some tough old roots, some tough old roots in those pots, and I just tossed those old roots away because I was hurry in a hurry to get those petunias planted. And I, I didn't have enough flowers for all the colorful pots, and so I'll just let one of those pots sit fallow. And about a week later, leaves popped up out of that pot. It was a perennial Gerbera daisy. Uh, and then it hit me. I had planted Gerberas last year in all of those colorful pots, every single one of them, looking forward to their perennial beauty. But in my haste, I uprooted and destroyed all of them except for one. Now, our current moment in this country is racked by a sense of urgency driven by the good and right desire. In fact, it is an, a, a, a desire that is planted in us by our Creator to deal with injustice. But so many of the hasty answers to the problems we face will uproot the beautiful and even now bring destruction infinitely more devastating than the loss of my potted plants. 
brothers and sisters, Christian people, if we let our secular culture call the shots on how we deal with injustice, the results will be death and not justice. The world needs the church, believers who publicly live out our confidence that there is a living God who will indeed judge, who will gather up the wheat and burn the tares, who will, wor who will work for justice, not in haste, but in hope. But closer to home, I wonder how much of the frantic, listen, I wonder how much of the frantic change and haste to keep up with the next coolest thing in evangelical churches is uprooting perennial beauty and maybe even tender young disciples along with other eternally valuable things. Now, another application that Jesus teaches here is that, uh, you're going to shake your heads like you believe this, but I'm going to tell you, that there is no such thing as a pure church. There's no such thing as a pure church. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But Christians are often discouraged and scandalized, keep that word, scandalized, keep that word in mind, by just how unchristian the church can be. Verse 41, Jesus said, The Son of Man at the end of the age will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That phrase, causes of sin, is actually the Greek word scandalon, the word that gives us the English word scandal. And that word literally means a stumbling block, a stumbling block. Jesus is referring to those false disciples, sons of the evil one, who cause people to stumble, to fall because of the infidelity of members of the church. Jesus warned us that this is the way that the visible church would be. We understand this, but we really don't believe it because when we do encounter the sons of the evil one in the church, we are shocked and we often give up on the body of Christ. Now, we don't believe deep down what I'm about to say. Yes, you will nod your heads in agreement, but we really don't believe it. Here it is. You will be hurt and disappointed in church and by the church. Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah, okay, I accept that. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people... I've talked to who have told me that they left the church because they were wounded by it, and those wounds are deep and real. Uh, right now, though, I'm witnessing pastors and their families, pastors in particular and their families, who are literally having their lives and families destroyed by the church. They lose their jobs, their income, they lose their homes their good name because of the weeds, the tares. I can tell you multiple stories of divorce and family breakup because of the effects of the weeds on pastors' families, the effects of ministry on pastors' families. A dear friend of mine, a young pastor in another denomination, he's probably the most gifted combination of pastor, scholar, radically committed disciple, man of integrity, the most most exemplary young man I could think of in ministry, and it is precisely because of his, his, his integrity as a follower of Jesus Christ 
and his faithfulness to the gospel that the sons of the evil one are now tearing this man apart. And they're not outside the church. They're in his church. His family is on the verge and probably will leave the ministry forever right now because of this. What is happening to them is unconscionable. I got hurt in the church. Your feelings got hurt. This man's losing his livelihood. He may lose his family. Along with the actual evil that is being perpetrated against them, part of why this is so destructive and devastating to clergy and their families, and yes, to faithful lay people, is this. This is why it's so devastating, and this is what I was telling you. You really don't believe this, but please listen. We really don't expect this to happen in church. We th it's kind of like coronavirus. We really don't think we'll ever get it. I don't think I'll ever get it. I think I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You know, viruses just bounce off of me. Oh, yeah, I know, I, I know it can happen, yeah, I, in, intellectually. But it's like, no, nah, I don't really think I'm going to get that. We don't really believe it could happen to us. You know, even in this parable, the servants of the household respond that way in verse 27, chapter 13, Matthew 13, 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? They just can't believe it. They just can't believe it. We, we saw you sow the good seed. How does it have weeds in the field? Brothers and sisters, gird up your loins right now with the realization that there are always going to be weeds growing with the wheat. Good Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, in the late 19th century, wrote, Are we ever tempted to leave one Protestant denomination or one Protestant church for another? Now, I love the way he asked that, because he's an English, uh, Anglican, Protestant, evangelical clergyman, and he just cannot even begin to imagine that we would, somebody would go from the Church of England to the Catholic Church. So it's obviously you're going to go to another Protestant church. But anyway... Be that as it may, I just love it. It's, it. It just shows his heart, his sweet spirit. Are, you ever t are we ever tempted to leave one Protestant church for another because we see many of its members unconverted? Let us remember this parable and take heed what we do. We shall never find a perfect church. We may spend our lives in migrating from communion to communion and pass our days in perpetual disappointment. Go where we will and worship where we may, we shall always find tares. So in the face of all of this, this, this parable, which is kind of bleak almost, uh, you know, is it, is it supposed to be defeatist? No. Where is the encouragement in this passage? Where is the encouragement? Well, I think about folks like my friend whom I describe, who I described, who is suffering great injustice at the at the hands of those who claim to be disciples but are not. Where is the encouragement for him and his family? Well, perhaps shockingly, the encouragement Jesus gives in this passage, and it was the encouragement that Matthew's church needed to hear, and I dare say it's the encouragement that this church needs to hear, and here it is, God will judge. There will be at some point, a reckoning with evil. At some point, injustice and wickedness will decisively 
be dealt with never to pollute God's kingdom again. Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 and following, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin, scandalons, all scandalous, stumbling blocks, and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In his great anti-slavery poem, The Present Crisis, which was written in the lead-up to the Civil War, James Russell, James Russell Lowell captured that hope, that hope, the encouragement, that God one day will punish evil and reward faithfulness. And until that time, God, God watches over his wheat, the sons and daughters of the kingdom. And here's what he wrote. Careless seems the great avenger. History pages but record one death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold. Wrong forever on the throne. Yeah, that scaffold sways the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.